So the second week of uh, this story of Esther, um, if you're here for the first time, uh, Esther is a book in the Old Testament. It's um, partway through, just before Psalms, you'll find it. So if you open your Bible right in the middle, go a little bit early, you'll find eventually a few books early, you'll find the book of Esther. It's a history book. It's a story. It's a remarkable story. Uh, and um, right at the center of the story is one particular verse, which contains the phrase, for such a time as this, which is why we've called this series, for such a time as this. But there is another reason why we've called uh, the series, for such a time as this, because I want to suggest to us, uh, right the way through, that this story may be in more powerful ways than for centuries, perhaps, can speak to our generation, the world that we live in today. I, am, I find it amazing uh, how incredibly engaged we are with stories, how stories speak so powerfully to us. Uh, I want to go really highbrow as we open and really lowbrow. First, really highbrow illustration uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky's um, Crime and Punishment. Maybe some of you have read it. I felt really guilty uh, by using it as an illustration. I thought, better download it and get reading Crime and Punishment. So I'll see you next year when I've managed to get through it. Uh, and find, But it's a story of redemption. It's a story which speaks with incredible power uh, making great comment about the world that Dostoevsky lived in. It's kind of that, it's written in a way that just wanted to shake the world that he lives in. Um, so that's the kind of, you know, maybe that connects with you. Um, maybe if that doesn't connect with you, can I give you another illustration? Uh, let's um, drift back to TV last night and Britain's Got Talent. You say, right, hang on, where are we going here? Um, attraction. Anybody see that yesterday? This amazing silhouette kind of act uh, where a dance troupe perform behind a screen and create what? A story. So we can go from Dostoevsky right the way through to Britain's Got Talent. And why? why is it? that that particular act seems to have captured the imagination of our generation. Why is it favorite? Why is it right on the, uh, the kind of forerunner for winning the competition? Because of this, I want to suggest. Because again, it tells a story. Yesterday's story was the story of the leader of the troop, and it's basically, it goes from him being born and being cared for by his mother and moving to the death of his mother and to the birth of his own child. In, in a few minutes, it tells the story of his life. And yet, when people look at that story, when they see that unfolding, it grabs a hold of us and it kind of emotionally grips us why? Because so many can relate to that story. It's a story which asks questions. So there we go. We've gone from one end of the spectrum to the other. And what we've found is that stories are an incredibly important part of what it is to be a human being. 
what it is to be a human being. It's not just a nice thing. Stories are not just nice things. They can be. You know, when you're a little child, you might think that the stories that you were read were just nice stories. Um, Yeah, I'm kind of thinking, you know, the kind of fairy stories that old people used to read when they were little, people like me. Maybe the Gruffalo doesn't quite have really deep connotations, quite the same as others. And some of you are saying, what's the Gruffalo? Well, that says a lot. Um, Stories are incredibly important. We have a story here. I want to suggest that it opens with a story of disastrous love. It portrays before us a story of disastrous love. In a sense, it's a simple story, and yet it's incredibly powerful. This rich king displays his incredible wealth to the whole of the nation for 180 days. King Xerxes, great question at the end of last week. Some of you might have a Bible version which describes him as King Ahasuerus. Uh, whereas this particular version describes him as King Xerxes. King Ahasuerus is his name in Hebrew. King Xerxes is his name in Greek. Uh, The Bible comes from both of those, uh, and that's all it is, really. It's just the different um, interpretation of this guy. He's a genuine character from history, uh, appears in the film 300, uh, and here he is displaying his incredible wealth to... All of the important, all of the key people uh, in his kingdom. So for 180 days he does that, and then for seven days, we can. If I want to put it in, if you like, um, in a way that would relate to today, at the end of that 180 days, him and his buddies have a drinking fest for seven days, and the girls party for seven days. That's precisely what we see. For a full 180 days, we read in verse uh, 4, his, uh, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom, and then he held a banquet lasting for seven days, and it describes the amazing beauty of the uh, palace and the way that it was incredibly decorated with gold and silver couches and all of this kind of thing. And and then we read in verse 9, And Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. So there's, if it just speaks so clearly about a lifestyle. It's saying, here we are, we're going to display everything that we have achieved, and then the guys are going to get together, and the girls are going to get together and do their thing. Uh, And doesn't sound particularly different, does it, to many lifestyles today. A seven-day blast at the end of displaying how successful we've been. And then there comes a moment of absolute crisis. The end of seven days, the king turns around and he says to those uh, seven eunuchs who have been serving him, which uh, Martin probably did a better job than I'm about to do, Mahuman, uh, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, uh, Zetha, and Carcass, these seven eunuchs. Now, if we take our minds back to the the ancient world, eunuchs were um, the, the individuals, those who, would be, who basically had been castrated 
uh, and therefore were not going to have any kind of desires for uh, the harem that the king had put together. Uh, And so these were, if you like, individuals that the king trusted and said, right now you, I want you to go into that, into the girls, I want you to get uh, Vashti out here and I want you to kind of use, let me put it like this, let me use my wife to be the pinnacle of the display of my success. That's the way the story unfolds. That's what he's looking to do. I've spent 180 days, the way the story writer builds it up, 180 days of displaying incredible wealth. Then... I'm going to give you seven days where we can, without any restrictions, we're going to be able to drink ourselves silly, and obviously, alongside of that, we're going to feast. We're going to kind of take that display of wealth and make it personal and live it, and then at the end of that, his decision is, I want you to now bring... Uh, the queen, so that she can be the pinnacle of this display of my success. It's the way the story unfolds. Some commentators argue that when we read um, in verse 11, he calls uh, the eunuchs to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown. Uh, Many of the commentators argue that what he's actually demanding is that the queen comes in to that particular group of guys, so you've got this separated idea, we've got all the girls over there, all the guys over here, we've been drinking for seven days, and then the commenter, some commentators suggest, bring her in wearing her crown, the suggestion is that probably what that means is literally only wearing her crown. In other words, I want you to bring... and. Uh, you know, let it settle into the shock and horror, which is precisely what the storyteller, the narrator, is seeking for us to do. I want you to bring my wife in naked in front of my drunk mates because she's beautiful. What a shocking situation. In other words, what we see unfolding and what the narrator is hoping for us to understand is that with seven days of drinking, the, kind, the drink unmasks the reality of the attitude. That's what's going on. It unmasks what the deep attitude of King Xerxes is towards his wife, Vashti. You are not somebody who I cherish and love and protect. You are not somebody who I see as one with me, my my co-being, my one flesh. You are somebody who for me is the pinnacle of my trophies. You have become somebody who is the identity of my success. I'm the kind of guy, in other words, who can get a woman like you and display her. 
It's a shocking portrayal that the story is wanting to unfold. In other words, it it exposes the relationship that exists. How does Queen Vashti respond? Well, he wants to uh, bring her before all of his drunk mates wearing a royal crown in in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But... When the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. And you would immediately, and quite rightly, in one sense, say, I don't blame her. <laughs> I don't, she, do, she has done exactly the right thing. But the decision to not do that she would know is there's going to be a cost to it. The decision to make that step of refusing the demand of the king to come into uh, the present, into his presence, to be his final pinnacle of display, that was going to cost. It's going to have an impact, but it's deeper. I think there's more to it. Because what, the way the story has been displayed up to now is they have both, up to this crisis point, they have both been engaged in the mutual display of their success. So in other words, although on the one hand, we would say Vashti is absolutely right to not go along with that particular behavior. On the other hand, what speaks so powerfully is that they have both been using each other up to now. They've both been using each other. She's there with all of the girls. Quite clearly, she is holding a banquet for the girls. She is displaying her wealth. When we think about Queen Vashti, when we see her in this situation, when we see um, human nature displayed in this particular way, in the way that it unfolds, in the way that we see it repeated again and again and again through history, we see just this crisis occurring. Because there is a point at which I'm quite happy to go along with all of the success while it works for me. I'm quite happy to go along with the trappings. I'm quite happy. I'm quite happy to be the trophy wife because it works for me. It kind of puts me where? Above all the girls. It puts me in a place which says, I'm the one who can throw the party for all of the girls. I'm quite happy to go along with it through that period of time, and yet there is a crisis point. There is a moment where it trips over a line, and we realize that King Xerxes goes beyond anything that's reasonable and exposes that the reality is that both of them have probably been in it for their own ends. We see it repeated time and time and time again. The core problem, the core issue, 
is that we have both been happy to use each other for mutual benefit until one or the other, and it doesn't necessarily have to always be the king. It might be the queen who steps over the line as well in in any kind of other context. It reaches that point where one demands what the other cannot give, and we end up in this Mexican standoff. That's, That's where it ends up. He says, right, you come into here wearing your crown, and she says, no, I'm going to refuse. And at that point, there is a crisis. Why is there a crisis? Because both of their reputations are at stake. In the eyes of others, their reputations are at stake. The core problem. I am now going to appear, Xerxes says, I'm going to appear weak. I'm going to appear as though I'm not the king. I'm going to appear as though my wife can kind of do what she wants. And after all, I'm the most important, powerful man in the whole world. And that's just... You're not listening to... Do you know who I am? I'm the king. And she says, do you know who I am? In front of all of these women... If, if you win this one, I am shamed. And a standoff occurs. Because at the core is a relationship which is self-serving, not mutually serving. One of the reasons that we've been looking at, well, well, I want to suggest one of the reasons where I, I think that this particular book speaks so powerfully to our culture is because it, at this point, it nails the crisis of this world. It nails the issue. It kind of, Time and again, as we read the Bible, the the stories demand, the unfolding of the teaching of the Bible demands that we we work out, where's this come from? How do I create connections in the storyline? This moment says to me, Genesis chapter 3, where the relationship between men and women, and particularly between husband and wife, end up in crisis end up in crisis. There is a a relationship which is no longer mutually serving. There is a a relationship which is is self-serving and therefore I go into a relationship with what I can get out of it. Listen to what it says in Genesis 3, 16 and 17. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to your children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. He will rule over you. I want to nail this particular issue. That is not, that is not God saying that is the appropriate way for us to have relationships between husband and wife. He's not saying that is the right way that he's going to rule over you. That is a curse. That is a destruction of the way it ought to be. There is a a relationship that first is seen as together and one and mutual. 
and complementary. And then suddenly God says, now that is going to be, that's going to be broken. Now there's going to be a tendency to behave like Xerxes. <laughs> there's going to be that tendency to demand and to rule. And yet at the same time, you're going to be looking, you're going to find your security in that, just, just like Vashti who's been up to this point in time, happy to go along with it if it meets the needs. Disastrous love. What do stories do? What should stories do? Stories, particularly stories like this, stories in the Bible, the function of a narrative in the Bible, should do this for us. It should confront us. It should give us a stark picture of an issue, of a challenge, of a problem, so that we might respond and say, yeah, that's not how it should be, is it? That's not how it should be. Therefore, how, how does that speak to the world that we live in today, to the, to the patterns of life that emerge in our society I just think that the idea of, in contemporary terms, seven days of made-it lifestyle, seven days of party, seven days of the guys together, seven days of the girls together, seven days of displaying how successful we have been is just rife in our society today. In our society today. So much so that the idea of being able to display that kind of excessive wealth is no longer in our society seen as something offensive It's seen as a mark of success. It's seen as something to aspire to. It's seen as a mark to say, that's what real living is all about. We see it time and time again on our TVs, in our magazines, in the kind of celebrity world that we live in, which portrays continuously before us, in this world, in the world today, Success looks like this. Success looks like the ability to just go and party on a yacht in Tenerife for a week. And you can just take, you know, if you've really made it, you can take all your mates. That's when you've really made it. And you know, real success is just being able to blow out for a week and just go wild. And this story says nothing has changed in the world. Well, actually, something has changed. I think what has changed is that the opportunity for us to aspire to that has become far more available to far more people in Western society. 
There are people in the world today who would look at the idea of being able to blow out for a week as being so incomprehensible, so far away from the living reality of the shocking life that they live, the kind of peasants who would have been outside Vashti and Xerxes' palace are now the people who are living in abject poverty in the world around. And yet in Western Europe and in the West particularly, we see the opportunity to aspire to this kind of lifestyle as the way that we should be. That's when you've made it. We now live in a kind of world where celebrity is the aspirational objective of so many of our teenage youth today. Guys, are you in the situation where you're looking at the future and saying, what am I going to do with life? And falling into the trap of saying a successful life is being famous and being able to blow it. Nothing could be more powerful than uh, uh, Sophia Capella daughter of Francis Ford Capella, famous director, uh, has just this past week uh, talked about uh, a new movie that she's making. It's called The Bling Ring. The Bling Ring is she's bought up the rights uh, to um, tell the story, again, to tell the story, to confront us with a reality, to tell the story of a group of teenagers in California who used social media to track all of the, uh, the celebrities, the big movers and shakers, the A-listers, track them so that when they worked out that they were not at home, they could go in, they could break in, they could steal a whole load of gear with the objective of what? Making money? No. The objective of being able to walk around in that kind of clothing and ultimately with the objective of being caught Because that makes them famous. The bling ring. What what kind of a world have we reached where that kind of being known is an aspiration? And yet I want to suggest to you that the reality is that although that might be way off there in that end of the spectrum, it is connected all the way down to all of the other patterns of behavior, all of the other ways in which we live, where we live with us on the throne, where I am the center, and the objective of your presence in my life is to work out what you can provide for me. What you can do for me. In other words, so many of us go into relationships where we don't think, we don't think in going into a relationship, what can I do for you so that your life is better because I'm present? We go into relationships asking this question. Is your presence in my life going to make my life better? Now think about that difference. I want you to imagine two great big circles. Over here is one individual, over here is another individual, and as those two circles cross over, there's the relationship. And I look at that relationship and I'm over here and I say, I look at that relationship, what can I drag out of that relationship for my benefit? 
And this person over here is doing exactly the same. What can I do with that relationship? What can I drag out of it that that makes my life better? What's going to happen with that relationship? It's going to do exactly what Xerxes and Vashti's relationship ultimately did. It ends up in a standoff. It ends up in a situation where I look at what's going on and I'm going to drag out of it, I will drag out of it, what's good for me. And it's going to be at your cost. Now, imagine if we reverse that. Imagine if we looked at that relationship and we said, I will do everything to invest in that relationship so it is the better for you. And the other person was doing exactly the same. I will invest in that relationship so that everything I do will be the better for you. You know, paradoxically, (laughs) we get out of those relationships what we desperately wanted anyway. (laughs) Because when two are pushing into the relationship, what happens? It becomes that we receive out of it what we know instinctively we need. Because that's the reality. Instinctively, we know we need that love and that care and that compassion and that honoring and that desiring and all of those things that so many go in and seek to drag out of it. Whereas if we go in saying, I'm going to give it, we get it anyway. And I want to suggest that this chapter, this little section, speaks so powerfully and counterculturally in a way by exposing to us the reality of the culture that we live in. But there's something else. Because ultimately, it's all just a picture. The relationships, the the idea of relationship is the idea of that that husband and wife relationship. It is a picture. It's a portrayal. It's a continuous portrayal of something way better. Listen to how the Bible describes the relationship between God and his people. At the end of the world. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Come and let me show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Now, now who is the Lamb? That's Jesus. Uh, And what this particular section like so much of Revelation is all about. It's like painting this incredible picture with words. Come and let me show you the bride. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel like a jasper, clear as crystal. Isn't it interesting that the Bible describes the bride in that sense as something bigger than just a single individual? 
It describes it as something big and majestic and way better than Xerxes' palace because it is a people. The bride of Jesus, ultimately, ultimately, the bride of Jesus is the combination and presence of all of his people together. That's mind-blowing, and in one sense, I can't get my head around it, because it is an incredible, unmanageable number of people, in human terms, who are together as one, who are displayed in beauty and majesty as the bride. Now, do you see the way there is a difference now between the way Xerxes wants to display his bride and the lamb wants to display his bride. Because one wants to expose her at her cost for his benefit and the other, the lamb, wants to display his bride in all of her clothed glory and majesty for her benefit. For her benefit. Why? Why for her benefit? Because by displaying her for her benefit, it reflects back on him. Because both are like those two circles, pushing into the relationship. The amazing power is that this little picture is another springboard for us to be reminded what Jesus thinks of his people. And in stark contrast, there is a way that he thinks of those who rebel and reject him, and there is a way that he thinks of those who he loves. We see in the book of Nahum, one of the prophecies, another picture. A picture of the way God views those who have rebelled against him. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. Listen to this because it's stark. I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show your, the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will pelt you with filth. I will treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. I will expose your nakedness in rebelling against me. I will turn back onto you all of your rebellion against me. Do not think, do not think that God is benign when it comes to rebelling against him. Don't get into your mind that God is just this kind of fuzzy, lovely God of love who will... Don't worry about offending him because after all, he's a God of love. God is strident in saying, ultimately you stand against me, I will expose your nakedness. And I'll pelt you with filth. Obviously, that's a picture. It's not a literal statement. It's a way of, of, of the, the, the prophet trying to use words to display... How offense, as offensive in a way 
as Xerxes demanding that his wife comes into that party naked because it's that sense of exposed shame. But the reality is that the ones who God will expose in their shame is the ones who deserve to be shamed because the rebellion is real. I just think it's powerful when God says, I'll lift up your skirts and expose your nakedness and cover you in filth. Do not believe that God is benign, but do believe and do understand that he is a God who will deal with rebellion. He will deal with it. He will deal with injustice. He will deal with the perpetrators of injustice and rebellion and sin against him. He will expose the reality of that. Look at then, in contrast, how he describes his people. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me. He's clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Look at the contrast. God is actually saying, it's not like you're the good guys who deserve to be wearing nice things and you're the bad guys who deserve to be exposed and covered in filth. He's actually saying you deserve to be exposed and covered in filth as well but I will clothe you in garments of righteousness. Isn't that amazing? I will clothe you. I will cover you. That's one of the ideas that's behind that. I won't expose you. I will cover you in righteousness. I will clothe the naked rebel with my grace and my mercy. It's an amazing story. The idea of the salvation of God and the ultimate purpose is that God will display how much he loves his bride, even though she doesn't deserve to be loved. Ultimately, how? Well, ultimately, because God isn't the kind of God who sits out there in the cosmos and throws out ideas and throws out edicts. And throws out demands just like Xerxes. You know, this king doesn't sit on the throne and demand. This king, this king is a king who has come into this mess. And this king is ultimately a king who himself has been stripped naked and exposed. In other words, he is one who has been made a shame so that those who deserve to be shamed might be clothed in righteousness. That is an amazing storyline that the Bible portrays for us. But as we look at this, maybe one of the things that we need to ask is, am I living wrapped up in the idea of that glory, that glory, that amazing glory, 
the glory of a God who loves me and has died for me, the glory of a God who has been stripped naked so that I don't get stripped naked, or am I living with all of the trappings of the weak glory of this world? Or am I able to see through the empty shell, the mess, the stinking mess of false hope through me on the throne rather than Jesus on the throne. 